We are going to dive in here this morning, kicking off our series in First Thessalonians, Faith in the Gospel. So glad to be with you here, the brave at heart who are not at the beach or camping this weekend. Thank you for being here, the unofficial end of summer. Well, we're excited to uh, kick off the fall and all of the ministries and exciting things we've got going on this season. How many of you like a good backstory? Kind of the seeing the, the backstory, how the, how the hero grew up or what was going on before the war began, the backstory, even before kind of the prequel fad that we've seen the last few years. A good backstory has always been crucial to a good plot line, right? Um, many of you know and love the story of Robin Hood, but if you just sort of pick up the story when, when, when Robin Hood's 30, it, it's not as powerful, right? You need to know that he grew up as a, as a spoiled noble, tension with his father. He left home to go fight in the Crusades and came back only what? To find that his father is gone and that the sheriff of Nottingham is now wreaking oppression all over the land, right? We need to know that to understand his motivation. You know, Batman is just a weirdo dressing up you know, for a costume party, unless you know that his parents were gunned down in the streets of Gotham, grew up, you know, wealthy, saw his parents shot before him and determined at that point to do the training and preparation, whatever he needed to do to to become a man that could take justice into his own hands, right? It's crucial to know the backstory. We can't, don't even have the time to go into the significance of Darth Vader's backstory, right? If you're a Star Wars fan, you had to wait literally 20 years to get the backstory of Anakin and how that led up to his transformation into Vader. Um, my family and I recently watched, again, uh, Walk the Line, kind of the bio-epic of Johnny Cash. And, and really, the life of Johnny Cash doesn't make a whole lot of sense unless you understand the pain and the turmoil of his early childhood, how his, his older brother that he looked up to died tragically, how it created tension with his father and led to a life of, of beautiful music, but also tremendous tension and, and self-doubt, just a torn, torn man. In the scriptures, many of the books of the New Testament are letters, right? Um, letters that, that Christian leaders wrote to actual people with actual problems. And very often, we don't know what's going on. We don't know the backstory. We have to kind of put the pieces together. But with First Thessalonians, the book we're studying this fall, by God's grace, we have the backstory in the book of Acts. And so this morning, we're going to kick off in Acts 17, looking at the backstory to the letter that we're going to be studying this fall. So if you have one of the Bibles uh, from the back table, one of those hardback blue Bibles, we are going to be on page 926 this morning. Love for you to follow along. There's still more Bibles on those two tables in the back if you don't have one with you. Paul, you know from the book of Acts, had initially been an opponent to Christianity, but he met Jesus in a supernatural way on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, and he was dramatically transformed became a force for Christ. In Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas are commissioned. They're sent out from their home church there in Antioch on their first missionary journey. They preached the gospel. They planted churches, but they faced intense persecution, even stoning. They returned to Antioch. Paul prepares to go out again in chapter 16. This time he's going to partner up with Silas. And very soon after Paul and Silas go out, they recruit Timothy to join them. In the city of Philippi, we read in Acts that they are arrested, they're beaten, but they are miraculously released from prison. And then in chapter 17, undeterred by all the conflict and affliction that they faced, in chapter 17, they arrive in the city of Thessalonica. 
In fact, in the letter of, of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, we read this. They, they say, Paul, Silas, and Timothy say, Though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So they, they're very aware of the conflict and the tension surrounding their ministry, but they arrive in Thessalonica, even having been arrested and beaten in Philippi, undeterred, ready to share the gospel. Thessalonica was a port city now in, in modern-day Greece. It was the capital of that Roman providence, Macedonia. It was built on a, on a natural harbor, so it was a busy city, busy with trade, a sophisticated, multicultural, urban center, thorough, valuing education and philosophy, but also full of pagan worship, the pantheon of Greco-Roman gods, Egyptian cults that had made their way in, even the veneration of the Roman emperor, all filled the city of Thessalonia. And as we're going to read in a minute, when they arrive, they, they launch their ministry in the synagogue, and a number of, of Jews and Greeks as well come to faith in Christ. However, Paul and Silas eventually are accused of stirring up insurrection in the city, and so they have to flee. And so they flee the city without being able to prepare for them leaving. And concerned now about how the, the new Christians are doing in the city of Thessalonica, unable to go back and visit themselves, Paul and Silas send Timothy, because I guess he's the youngest, he's the most expendable, I don't know. So Timothy goes back to check on this new church. So he travels back to check on them. And in 1 Thessalonians 3, 6, we're going to read in a few weeks, that Timothy comes back with a great report that the Christians are strong, their faith is strong. And so the letter is now written back, following Timothy's report, written back to the Christians there to build up what is an already strong faith, to commend them, to answer some questions, and to stir their faith in the gospel of Christ. Uh, this is one of Paul's earliest letters. Again, we'll read that it's written by Paul, Silas, and Timothy together, written in the third person, plural, written about 50 A.D., only about 20 years after Jesus had risen and, and ascended back up into heaven. So one of the earliest letters. And in this letter, we see the very special love and investment that Paul, Silas, and Timothy have for these Thessalonians. In fact, the opening of the letter says this, We give thanks to God always. I believe we have this scripture. First Thessalonians chapter 1 says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. We know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And so you can see the heart and the passion that they have for these Christians. Later in chapter 2, verse 8, the, the, these leaders will say, Being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves. Because you had become very dear to us. And this is a theme that we're going to talk about it again and again this fall. That they bring the gospel, they proclaim truth, but they share their lives. They share their, their very selves with them. And so the Christians in that city, because of this ministry, because of the work of the Holy Spirit, were transformed, transformed because of their faith in the gospel. They came, the gospel that came in word, in power, in the Holy Spirit. These Christians believed and they were never the same. Now we're going to read in 1 Thessalonians that even though they received Christ in the midst of all this turmoil that we're going to read about today in Acts 17, their faith was strong. In fact, their faith became an example to the whole region. As we hear and as we study and unpack the book of 1 Thessalonians, you're going to be unpacking it in your life groups. 
we're going to see how their faith is stirred and strengthened. And I hope and pray that our own faith in Christ is stirred and strengthened. That we too will be encouraged and directed to the gospel. Not only to the gospel for ourselves, but to gospel ministry for one another. To gospel ministry for the world and the community around us. As we see the way that they minister to one another, we'll be encouraged and stirred to minister to others. And we'll be exhorted in First Thessalonians to continue to walk in a way that pleases God as children of light. The letter will use that expression. We'll be encouraged to love one another, to encourage one another, to look to the Lord's coming again and again. There's this theme of hoping in the Lord's second coming. Paul will explain to us some important details about the Lord's coming. And, and the book of, of 1 Thessalonians will close with this confirmation. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And so the book is going to stir us and call us to action, call us to walk faithfully. But remember this, friends. He who calls you, the Lord Jesus who calls you, is faithful, and He will surely do it. He is at work in us. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. We're, we're in Acts 17 today. Let's look at the backstory. And the backstory of what I see as this upheaval that happens in Thessalonica is the whole city is thrown into turmoil. And there's upheaval on both ends. On the one end, we see people embrace the gospel, believe in Christ, and there's this internal upheaval as they are transformed. But others consider the gospel to be a disruption, a threat. They reject it. And as a result, the society, the, the city itself is turned upside down. So let's pray together and ask for the Spirit to help us, and then we'll dive in here to Acts chapter 17. Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for this gathering this morning and gatherings all over southern York County, northern Baltimore County, Pennsylvania, the United States. God, across the world, as brothers and sisters are gathered in your name, would you pour out your blessing and your Spirit in those gatherings as well? Father, that Jesus would be worshipped, that the word would be proclaimed, that faith would be stirred, that a light would shine into the world outside of every missional outpost you have stationed, every local church, God. And for us this morning, might your spirit stir in us. Father, speak through my words, speak to our ears to hear the word of God. We thank you for this account that our brother Luke recorded for us by the stirring of your Holy Spirit. Father, we read now the Word of God. Truth to us. In Jesus' name, amen. And we, when they had passed through Amphipolos and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, setting the city in an uproar and attacking the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they had arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Amen. 
Amen. So verse 1, they arrive in Thessalonica, and as their practice, they start, their launching pad is in the synagogue, speaking to the gathering of Jewish believers in, in many or most of, of, of prominent cities in the Roman world. There were uh, dispersed Jewish faithful brothers and sisters who gathered in the synagogue to, to hear from the Torah, to worship Yahweh, and hopefully... Not just follow the law, but anticipate the Messiah's coming. So Paul arrives and he starts teaching them the Christian gospel from the scriptures. Now the scriptures at that point were the Old Testament, right? And there are four verbs used, and, and I'm sure that Craig will call these verbs to his, his life group's attention this week. Four verbs there used to describe Paul's ministry. What does it say? He was reasoning with them. He was explaining the scriptures to them. He was proving that Jesus was the Christ. And he was proclaiming. Right? He's doing these things in the synagogue. These are religious people, people that have a background, an understanding of faith in God, a trust in the scriptures as the word of God. And this was Paul's common approach to ministry in the book of Acts. And we see that he's, he's in this sense, the way it's explained to us, he's focusing on ministering to their heads, explaining, proving, reasoning with them that Jesus is the long-awaited Christ that they had been waiting for. Now in our day, we sometimes tend to focus on the heart. And it's good and right that we focus on the heart, but we cannot lose sight of the, the reality that we need to focus on the head as well. We need to reason with people, explain to people that the gospel makes sense, that there is, there is rational evidence for the existence of God, rational evidence for the resurrection of Jesus from the dead in the first century. The Christian gospel is, is true, and because it's true, it's effective, it warms our heart, it stirs us to faith, but because it's true, it's also reasonable. It makes sense. And so we can and should persuade and reason and proclaim the truth of of Christ. This is not arguing. We're not talking about arguing with our neighbors or family members or children. We're not forcing people to believe in Jesus, but we are persuading them. It, It says here that some were persuaded to believe. Persuasion is a good and godly thing when done by the leading of the Holy Spirit, when grounded in the scriptures, we, we have been persuaded. If you're a man or woman of faith, you've been persuaded to put your trust in Christ. And we should seek appropriately, respectfully to persuade others. And particularly when you come across someone that has a foundation of belief in God or has respect for the Bible. To reason with them from the Word. To use the Word of God to prove that Jesus is the Savior. To prove that the Gospel is true. Now again, as I said, that's not all that Paul and Silas and Timothy did in Thessalonica. As I read just a minute ago from, from the letter of 1 Thessalonians, as we'll unpack this this fall. They say to them, Our Gospel came to you not only in Word, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. So these guys are teaching, proclaiming, reasoning, reasoning, but the Holy Spirit is there, working in power. Right? Demonstrating the truth of, of what they are proclaiming. Proclaiming with full conviction. As we read earlier in chapter 2, they say, We were ready to share with you not only the Gospel, but also our own selves. And so friends, as we reason... As we explain, as we prove that Jesus is the Christ, that the gospel is true, I pray and hope that we're not only sharing truth, but we're sharing our very lives. Caring and loving and serving, building relationship in the church and in the community. We share the gospel and we share our very lives. We we proclaim truth in word and in power, all by the Holy Spirit. And so we are launching this gospel project 
curriculum with our kids. And, and we are super excited to dig into the Word of God to show that these Old Testament Bible stories are not just stories, but they point to Jesus. They proclaim the gospel. And so we're going to explain and we're going we're gonna to reason with our children to prove to them that Jesus is the Christ. And by God's grace, persuade them to believe in Jesus. The scriptures have value because it's true and because it's the word of God. And so that's why I, I try to text scriptures in the, the group text that I now have with my, my wife and my, and my oldest three kids. That's why when you come to me with a need, I will very often respond to you texting back a scripture. Because I can seek to stir your faith, build your faith, remind you of the truth of God, but can the scriptures speak? And in a few weeks when we gather at the New Freedom Fest, and some of you, shameless pitch, some of you are going to sign up to, to man the slide and make sure the kids are having fun and being safe. Others are going to be by the info table and we're going to have a question up on the board and ask people to write questions and we're going to look and pray for opportunities to, to pray for people, to, to, to have doors to share Christ. And as we do that, I don't know about you, but I'm going to pray, God, as I have these conversations, would you bring scripture verses to my mind? That I'm not just sharing my opinion, but that I can weave the truth of your word. And, and I can say to people, you know, the Bible says in a book called Ephesians 2 that it's for by grace we have been saved through faith. Not our own doing, but it is the gift of God. And we pro- can proclaim to people using, reasoning, explaining from the truth of God's word why we trust in Christ. Why we believe in the gospel. When you're counseling with one another in life group before and after when a friend meets you for coffee and, 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 and they're discouraged as I have opportunity to, to meet with you and, and, and encourage you in your times of need, I pray and I hope that you're saying, Lord, give me your word to encourage. And, and you can give somebody good advice, practical insight, and, and sure, that's helpful. But how much more powerful to minister to them from, from a psalm that speaks into their life powerfully. How much, how much more powerful to reason with them and the, and the lies and the distractions of the world that we caught, get caught up into to, to turn somebody back to the Scripture, whether a believer or whether a non-believer, to turn them to the Word and to prove to them the love of God, to prove to them the grace of God, the forgiveness of God, the hope of God, restoration from fear and anxiety and discouraged depression, whatever it is, whatever grief or hardship you're facing. Let's join with Paul and these leaders and bringing the gospel in word and in power and in the Holy Spirit to reason with one another from the Scriptures. To prove that Jesus is the hope that we long for. Because God's word is true. Now in verse 3, we see that Paul's focus as he's doing this with his audience. His focus is convincing them from the word of God. What does it say? That it was necessary that the Messiah would suffer and rise again. See, many of the people that Paul is speaking to were faithful Jews. They had a foundation of understanding of God and the Scriptures. But to them, why would the Messiah suffer and die on a cross? Why would the Messiah rise again and come back to life? That didn't make any sense. Paul sought to prove to them from the Old Testament that it was necessary for Jesus to suffer and to rise again in glory. And he proclaimed to them, Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah, was the one that we have been waiting for, just as the Scriptures taught. And he sought to prove to them that it was necessary that he come and live a righteous life, die as a sacrifice for sins, and rise again in victory over sin, death, and the devil. And I want to share with you this morning that every moment of Jesus' life was necessary. His coming to earth was necessary. And because of that, Jesus is the only way to eternal life. And I spoke with a man in the community recently 
a man from India, had some experience, some exposure to Christianity, and, and was, had a very, very positive opinion of Christianity, but sort of had that mindset that, you know, there are many ways to God, and Christians are good, and Hindus are good, and Buddhists are good, and, and Muslims from my home country are good. And, and I tried to, to explain and to reason and to prove to him, yes, but it was necessary for Christ to come. Because without his righteous life, without his atoning death, without his resurrection, we cannot be reconciled to God. And I want to tell you this, if it was not necessary for the Son of God, for the second person of the Trinity, if it was not necessary for him to come to earth, to live 30-some years in human form, if it was not necessary for him to be falsely accused, abandoned by his disciples, convicted before a, a, a false court, to be whipped and beaten and brutally hung on a cross, if it was not necessary for Jesus, the Son of God, to face the wrath of his father, to carry the weight of our sins. If that was not necessary, I assure you he would have never done it. If there is another way, if there were another way to get to God, other than through the death and resurrection of Jesus, Jesus would never have come to earth and suffer in the way that he did. But it was necessary. And we can prove that from the scriptures, that our broken relationship with God requires atonement, requires that amends be made. And because he died on the cross, it was just as necessary that he rise again in victory to bring us into new life. And that is the only way. Jesus came to bring us to that way. It's interesting, Luke, the author of Acts, also authored a gospel called Luke. And he uses these same words, quoting Jesus. After Jesus rose from the dead in in the gospel of Luke chapter 24, Jesus says to his disciples, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Jesus, after he died and rose again, is explaining to his disciples, and he's using the Old Testament, to prove to his disciples. It says in Luke 24 that he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And Jesus taught when you love to sit in on this Bible study. He taught his, his disciples, thus it is written, talking there about the Old Testament, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And so, so Paul is doing the same thing that Jesus had done with his disciples. He's showing and demonstrating that the Old Testament speaks about the Messiah, speaks about the suffering and resurrection, the victory that's going to come through the Messiah. And Jesus says, that was me, and Paul says, that was Jesus. Now, Jesus and Paul and the, and the early New Testament church, they're not just pointing to one or two scriptures. You read through the New Testament, and the New Testament is littered, littered with Old Testament scriptures and references and quotations predicting and pointing to the Messiah's death and resurrection. See, all of the Old Testament foreshadows looked ahead to the promise that the Messiah would suffer, would atone for the sin of His children, would bring life out of death in glory. All of the Old Testament speaks about the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus' return. You look at the promise in Genesis, the promise that That the Lord would crush the serpent through the seed of the woman. That seed is the promised Messiah. The sacrificial system in Leviticus that I know nobody likes to read through in your Bible reading plan. But that whole system was foreshadowing the Messiah that would have to die. Now, most of the first century Jews hadn't seen it, hadn't noticed it, that that sacrificial system was leading to the atonement of the Messiah. The suffering servant we read about in Isaiah, Elijah's vision of the dry bones coming to life foreshadows the resurrection. The promise in Psalm 16 that God's Holy One will not be abandoned into death 
proclaims the resurrection. Psalm 30, praising God who restores life from those who go down into the pit of death is ultimately fulfilled in the Messiah. Jesus taught that the whole story of Jonah and him being swallowed and, and, and essentially living in, in Sheol in, in the Hebrew concept of death for three days and then being brought back to life. Jesus says that's a symbol of my death and resurrection. The life, death, and resurrection, the return of Jesus fulfills every promise, every prophecy, every story, every theme, every law of the Old Testament looks forward. And and, and so we can use the Old Testament, and, and thankfully we now also have the New Testament, to prove, to demonstrate, to teach, to proclaim the hope of Christ, to proclaim His love and the victory of salvation. Now the Jews in the synagogue in Thessalonica hear this, and they hear Paul reasoning with them, and it must have gone well the first Saturday, because they invite him back for the next two Saturdays. For three three weeks in a row on the Sabbath, Paul is proclaiming Christ from the Scriptures. And the Spirit works in their hearts. And in verse 4 we read that some of them were persuaded, and they join Paul and Silas. They join this new Jewish sect, because that's kind of how it started, as a Jewish sect, proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah, and they're persuaded. And as I said earlier, it's, it's, it's good and right that we seek to persuade people. I'm not talking about using um, fleshly tactics or worldly tactics. I'm not talking about manipulating or forcing people. I'm talking about telling people why we believe, proclaiming the truth of Scripture. And the only way you or I or Paul or Silas, the only way anybody can persuade someone to give their life to Christ, to believe that Jesus is the Savior, the only way anybody can convince somebody to commit to following Jesus is if the Spirit opens their eyes, brings them to new life, and converts their heart. And so whenever somebody is persuaded, that's because the Holy Spirit of God is at work. Paul was in Philippi before he was in Thessalonica, and he preached there to a group of women And the scripture says of a woman named Lydia that the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And so we should both be engaging and be relevant and connect and be loving and be compassionate as we proclaim the truth of Christ to our children, to our friends, to our neighbors, to the people in your life group. But you should also pray and say, God, open their heart. Open their heart. And before I ever have an opportunity to persuade them, would your Holy Spirit persuade them of the truth of Christ? Now in verse 4, we see that not only did the Jews in the synagogue believe, but a large number of God-fearing Greeks, it says, and leading women, prominent women of the city, were persuaded to believe in Jesus. Now most likely these Greeks there referenced were followers of the Jewish faith. There were, there were Greek Gentiles that had seen the integrity and, and the value of the Jewish religion and the God Yahweh. And so they had not become full Jewish converts, but they were God-fearing Greeks. Some of them also came to Christ. And, and early on, we know in the book of Acts, the church began to reach out to Gentiles. And God opened up the gospel to Gentiles as well. See, Christianity did begin as a Jewish sect. But very quickly, Gentiles, prominent Greek women, played a very crucial role in the early church and in the spread of Christianity. So the beauty of the gospel is, is that it is the way to God, the way to eternal life, the way to fulfillment and forgiveness and peace and eternity for everyone, not just for one demographic. The gospel is not just for people of Jewish descent. It's not just for the down and out. It's for prominent members of society. It's for, it's for Gentiles. In fact, 1 Thessalonians will read, goes on to explain that Paul and Silas were likely in the city, not just for those three Sabbaths, those three weeks that they preached at the synagogue, but likely their ministry expanded beyond that. 
They seem to have stayed in Thessalonica for quite some time and they worked in the city. They supported themselves there. Eventually, they share the gospel not only with Jewish believers, not only with God-fearing Gentiles, but with idol worshipers, with those in the city that worshiped false religion because the gospel is for any and all, for young and old, for poor and rich, for educated and uneducated, for Westerners and Easterners across the globe. And after what was white, what was likely several months of ministry there in Thessalonica, more and more of the city become Christians. And there's this upheaval that's taking place in their hearts as they are transformed, as they are, are never the same again through faith in the gospel. And, and, and they are new creation. And they have seen conversion. They have seen real change in their lives. And guess what? The city starts to change. The city starts to take notice. And particularly... We read in verse 5 that the Jewish leaders notice what's going on and they become, what? Jealous. They see what's going on in verse 5 and they are jealous because they feel like life is being turned upside down. Now what's interesting is that 20 years earlier, jealousy was what led the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem to crucify Jesus. And, and, and we can point a finger and we can blame them, but, but you have to remember, th- think for a minute of what's going on culturally at that time. The, the land of, of Judea is controlled by the Romans. Roman had military power, had the power of government, the power of the economy. The, the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, the only way that they were going to hold on to any sort of influence or any sort of power, the, any, any way that they could preserve as a nation, as a people group, as a religion, is if they held sway over the people. And so in Jerusalem, in here in Thessalonica, the Jewish leaders knew that if, if the sway that we have over the people is taken away from us, if we maintain influence over a large enough segment of this city, then the, then the Roman leaders of Thessalonica will have to listen to us because we control the people. And the only way that they could hold on to their identity, the only way that they could hold on to some small voice in the culture is if they had power over the people. And they saw that the Christians were pulling people away from them. And so... Those Jewish leaders could not stand for the rise of the Christian church. Some of them were motivated by, by their own um, ambition, their own selfishness, their own desire for power and prestige. But, but like Paul before he was converted, he genuinely thought he was doing the right thing by oppressing the early church because he thought the church was, was teaching heresy, leading people away from Christ. But those, those Jewish leaders are driven by jealousy. Because they know if all of, all of the Jewish people start following Jesus, we're going to lose control. And any voice, any influence we have over Rome will be taken away from us. And they, so they can't, they can't stand for it. And so in verse 5, these supposedly godly Jewish leaders end up using some pretty low tactics. And I think we can safely assume they're not being led by, by godly motives. Because what do they do? They gather some street thugs. right? They form a mob. And they start a riot against Paul and Silas and the following that they're gaining in the city. And they began protesting the Christians. They began setting the city into an uproar. Now, Paul and Silas are staying in Thessalonica at the house of a guy named Jason. We can assume that Jason was, was one of the Greeks that had come to Christ. And so this mob shows up at Jason's house. They surround him and they start shouting, send out Paul and Silas. And when they can't find Paul and Silas, they, they drag Jason, their host. They drag some of the other Christians, we see in verse 6, out into the street, and they bring them before the city council, the city government. 
And here is their accusation. They say, these men have been causing trouble all over the region because they've heard about this happening in other cities. Right? Because Christianity is now beginning to spread. And so they say, these men are causing trouble all over the region, turning the world upside down, they say. And now they've come here to our city. And we don't want their nonsense. We don't want their trouble in our city. And they say in verse 7, Jason has joined their cause and he's harboring them. He's harboring these Christians. And these Christians are defying the, the decrees of Caesar. We're a Roman city. We're the capital of our region. And these men and their, their following are guilty of sedition. Insurrection, they said, against the Roman emperor because they say there's another king. King Jesus. Now again, what's interesting is that 20 years earlier, the Jewish leaders used the same exact tactic in Jerusalem. They said, Jesus is claiming to be a king. And, and, and Jesus was convicted on two charges. He was convicted on blasphemy for claiming to be the son of God. And he was convicted of treason for claiming to be the king of the Jews. And so they used the same tactic here that these Christians opposed the rightful reign of Caesar. Now what happens? What happens to the mob in verse 8 and the city officials? They're upset. They're disturbed by, oh my gosh, this is going on in our city. And who are these people? And we heard of them, but we didn't know they were such a big threat. And it works. They've stirred the crowd up into a frenzy. And they don't want all this commotion. They don't want their city in upheaval. But what's interesting is that as this little mock trial is happening, probably in the street, maybe outside of a government building, they can't find Paul and Silas, the Bane agitators. They can't find them. And apparently there's not enough evidence to convict Jason and the other Christians of treason. And so what do they do in verse 9? They force Jason to give them a security bond. You know, you, they say, you pay us X amount of money and, and make a pledge that you'll get Paul and Silas out of here. And, and, it, and, if, and if things quiet down, we'll return to you the pledge. And if you promise that there will be no further disturbance of the peace. Now, I can only assume that Jason didn't do this voluntarily. He probably did it against his own will, right? Because at the end of the day, it was the Jewish leaders. It was the mob that was disturbing the peace, not the Christians. So in verse 10, we read that Jason and the rest of the Christians who had been arrested, they're released, and they find Paul and Silas. They sneak them out of the city. They take them 50 miles southwest down to Berea. And, and what do Paul and Silas do in Berea? They find a quiet place to hide. No, they go right back to the synagogue and start preaching and proclaiming the gospel again in the next city. Now, I want to take a brief side note about this guy, Jason. I think one of the unsung heroes of the book of Acts. Let's not underestimate the value of Jason's gospel ministry. Look, Paul and Silas and Timothy, they're, they're the guys that are mentioned, the guys that write the letter. Paul's the one that was the primary orator and, and gospel preacher. But man, does Jason have a valuable role. In the furthering of the gospel, doesn't he? Not everybody's going to be a preacher to crowds. Jason has this valuable support role. He hosts Paul and Silas. Right? He allows them to stay in their home. He becomes a launching point for their ministry. He's a person of peace to give them favor, to give them an opportunity to bring Christ to the community. Jason stands firm in the faith. He's a man of integrity that doesn't cave. He doesn't say, well, let me go and I'll tell you what Paul and Silas are hiding. Right? He faces persecution. He's willing to be arrested, to have his name drugged through the mud. He's willing to, to lose his finances with this security pledge. He's willing, after the arrest, to go find Paul and Silas to facilitate their escape, putting himself in further danger with the city officials. Man, let's not underestimate those that are working behind the scenes in support roles to further 
gospel ministry here in our community, across the world, as churches are planted, as missionaries go to places where Christ is neither known nor named, where, where Christianity is not legal. Those that send money, that pray, that act as hosts, that facilitate transportation, that print Bibles, that work for years and years translating the Holy Scriptures into languages that may never see the people that are reading those Bibles. So thank God for those men and women. Thank God for you here today. But but also, let's be careful. Please don't only assume that Jason was just in the background, that he was only in a support role. I find it very hard to believe that a man of this integrity, a man of this commitment, was not also sharing his faith and not also spreading the gospel. So while we need people to host missionaries, while we need people in a support role, please don't just assume, well, I'm just the the support guy. I'll let other people share their faith. I, I find it very hard to believe that Jason wasn't right alongside of those meetings in the synagogue, talking to people afterwards, communicating his faith, inviting his friends and neighbors, sharing how his life has been transformed. And so thank you for those that serve in in Jason ministry and their support roles. But, But man, be stirred to also speak about Christ and who he is and what he's done for you. Look, those early Christians were accused of political insurrection, and that's not what they were doing. That's not what Jesus did. He said his kingdom was not of this world. That's not what the early followers of Christ were doing in those Greco-Roman cities. But, but in a sense, it is true what they were accused of. What were they accused of? These Christians are turning the world upside down. We don't want it in our city. It's true in a sense. The gospel does turn the world upside down. It creates upheaval. The gospel upsets the status quo. It stirs up commotion both in our hearts and in our societies. And when it stirs up commotion in your heart, either you reject it or, or, or by the power of the Holy Spirit, you embrace Jesus, but your heart is no less stirred and, and flipped upside down. There's no less unhe- upheaval as you come to Christ and, and there's no doubt, historically, you can deny the resurrection, you can deny the authority of God's word, you can deny the truth of the gospel, but you cannot deny what Christianity and the gospel, what the resurrection of, of Jesus and the early church did in first century Roman world. The first century Roman world was turned upside down. That accusation was correct. In, in the first century Roman world, power indulgence and oppression ruled society, ruled the culture. And that was flipped on its head. City upon city, eventually across the Roman Empire. Their their understanding of power, their understanding of, of, of selfish indulgence, their understanding of oppression. Oppression was not a bad thing, it's just the way the world ran. And Christians rose up and they believed in Jesus and you know what they started doing? They started caring for the poor. They started valuing women. And men stopped sleeping around and they were dedicated only to their wives as marriage was valued. Children were protected and not left on the streets. Servants, immigrants were protected, were valued. Humility began to be a value in these cities, in these churches. Integrity and honesty, moderation, compassion became virtues in the Roman world because of the church. And society was flipped upside down. Although, let's be honest, in reality, Christianity didn't turn the world upside down. It turned it right side up. Amen? Life as it was truly meant to be lived began to be lived through the church, through Christ, through the gospel. As one commentator said, the spread of the gospel throughout the Roman Empire was the beginning of of a movement that would change the course of history forever. And there's no doubt about that. 
as churches and ministries have been carried and planted across the globe. And so we, we pray today, God, do it again. What, what a joy that, that we, as the church here in Southern York County, as the church in America, as the church across the world, might we be accused of non-believers. Stop what you're doing. You're turning the world upside down. I pray that we could turn our community upside down, that we would live with such love and compassion and grace, that the truth of Christ would not just be something we hold to in here, but something we live outside of these walls. And our communities would be flipped on their head, flipped right side up. Spirit, work in your church. Spread the gospel to turn the world right side up. But look, ultimately, people don't reject Jesus and the gospel just because the gospel turns the world upside down. I think more to the point, people reject Christ because he threatens to turn their life upside down. Right? People will put up with a certain amount in the world, but when you start talking about their heart, their life, because the reality is, there is another king. And while the Christians were not then and were not now primarily interested in political insurrection, there is another king, a king not of this world, King Jesus. And he not only threatens the status quo of society, but he threatens the status quo of our own heart, our own lives. And like those Jewish leaders, many of us just want things to stay the same. Just leave it alone. We want to continue to run our lives. We want the status quo to continue. And many men and women have rejected Jesus, have, have turned aside, have shown no interest in the gospel because they want to continue to set their own agenda. And some here this morning say, I'm fine to come to church, but let me continue to establish my own priorities, my own values. I want to run my own life. I don't want a disruption, let alone an upheaval. I don't want an inconvenience, let alone Jesus to flip my life on its head. I remember um, we were... Our flight had gotten canceled this summer. We were sitting in the Las Vegas airport. We had flown into Vegas, rented an RV, and seen some sights out west. And our flight was canceled, and so the six of us are sitting on, you know, one of those terrible little benches in the airport with all of our, our ten bags or whatever, and I'm sitting next to this woman, and, I, and I'm overhearing her conversation on her headset with her laptop. And she's talking away a mile a minute. She's some kind of mortgage broker, I, I think. And the first thing that occurs to me about this woman is how great her customer services and she's polite and kind and showing interest i'm like this woman should quit her job as a mortgage broker and like train everybody in the world about customer service there's something going on with this woman well as she's talking and as she's as she's rattling away in her keyboard and and doing her mortgage thing this this old four foot nothing hunched over woman comes up and she holds out this this ticket to this woman just this sad look in her eyes and it becomes clear that, 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 that the woman can't speak any English. And, and this woman who I'm sitting next to spoke a little Spanish enough to realize that the woman needed help. And she says, she, she says hold on just one minute. She puts her call on mute. And, and, and through hand motions and just this woman's sad face and she takes the ticket, she realizes this woman is lost in the Las Vegas airport and, and, and is holding this baggage you know, claim ticket. And, and, and so the woman gets back on her line and she says, in the point of this business meeting, she says, I need to call you right back. There's somebody here at the airport that needs help. So then she proceeds to get up. She puts her stuff down. She turns to me, who we have not spoken up until this point, and she says, excuse me, will you watch my stuff? Now, you're not supposed to do that in an airport. I know. I apologize. But I say, sure. And so she proceeds to leave this woman and to go help her find where she's going and meet up with her family. 
Two minutes go by, five minutes go by, 10 minutes go by, 15 minutes go by. This woman's not coming back. I'm looking at my wife like, what, what in the world is, is going on? I can't, can you believe that this woman has done this? Like we're in Las Vegas. Power, self, money, career, success, indulgence, right? I mean, those are the reigning attributes of the world. And, and Las Vegas is the capital. And here's a woman who just left all of her possessions, left her conference call, left her laptop, and, and just went to go help this woman. And when she finally came back, I, I had a suspicion in my heart. I said, God, there's no way a person would do this. And I, and I just asked an open-ended question when she came. I said, why did you do that? And she said, well, there's a passage in the Bible that says we should practice hospitality when strangers need help because, because some of those strangers might be angels. And I said, are you a Christian? And she said, yeah. And we began to talk, and I began to encourage her and tell her how blessed I was. I think I even told her, I said, you might show up in a sermon someday. But here's a woman so committed to Christ. I mean, literally, this, this was just a 15-minute segment of this woman's life. Just left it all on an on a, on a airport bench to go minister and to show compassion and love. You know, my favorite part of the story is that she said when she got down to baggage claim, there, there, was, a, there was a group of, of Spanish-speaking family members there, and the woman rushed over, and they surrounded her, and she says, I just walked away. And I thought to myself, man, if that had been me, I would have gone up, I would have explained that I was the one to help her, I would have asked for a selfie, I would have shaken their hands and let them congratulate me. She said, I just walked away and let her go be with her family. The humility, the compassion, the grace. Was that a disruption? Was that an upheaval in this woman's life? I don't even think she saw it that way. She just saw it as a need. And Jesus had so transformed her, transformed her and her priorities and her values and the way that she lived her life that she was literally just willing to walk away from it all to go be a minister of grace to a woman in need. And that's what it looks like when we truly allow Christ to transform us. Amen? To submit to Him, to trust Him. And for some of you today, it feels scary. It feels like an upheaval. But, but God is not turning your life upside down. He's turning it right side up. So as the worship team comes, let me just remind you to trust Him. To put your faith in Him. We're going to read this fall how the Thessalonians were transformed by their faith in the gospel. And we would be transformed. And we would be so transformed that we would minister compassion and grace and humility to one another. And to the world. And proclaim the truth of Christ. The book of Thessalonians closes this way, and it's our hope for this whole series. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Let's stand up and pray and worship together. Father in heaven, we thank you that Christ has burst into our lives and turned our sin, our fears, our worldliness our apathy, our disinterest on its head. And I pray even now that you would stir faith, even now that you would upend our values, our priorities, our selfishness, that you would call us to faith, call us to trust in you, call us to be men and women so on fire for Jesus that we would be willing to leave it all behind, to give ourselves fully and finally to you because there is another king. He doesn't sit on a throne or in the Oval Office, a king of heaven and earth. And so, Father, we give our hearts to you now. We say and we sing together, here's my heart, Lord. Here's my life, Lord. Here's my heart, Lord. Take it and make it your own. Take me and make me a man and woman of faith.
Take my heart, Lord, and make me like Christ. Give me your grace. Fill me up. We ask in Jesus' name.